Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. Excellent. Okay, so we will finish uh, talking about uh, social archaeology or how we trace societies in archaeology, uh, more properly said. We talked about band and tribe studies, or band and tribe uh, communities already. Uh, today we're going to talk about um, chiefdom and state, and we'll briefly touch on industrial state, which is what we live in. We will then uh, wrap up. There's a bit more after that that we'll get to. Okay. So chiefdom. So after band, remember, under 100 people, tribes, a uh, mm, couple thousand. Uh, by the time we get to chiefdoms, we're talking about large societies with internal social ranking and formal leaders. Those are the primary characteristics that tell us, hey, we're dealing with a new type of society here. Um, once you get internal social ranking, where some people are considered either better or superior or to be of a different class, you're dealing with either a chiefdom or a state. Um, this is a type of community that would have a formal leader, uh, perhaps one who is elected through maybe not direct democratic processes. There's lots of different ways to elect a leader. You can have a leader who uh, rules by force or by, um, by election by a small group of council members or something like that. There's a lot of different ways to elect them, um, not, few of which have any archaeological correlates, unfortunately. So here we're talking five to 20,000 folks in a chiefdom. So this might be a, a small, uh, might be a village or a, a town with the surrounding countryside, um, might all together be a chiefdom. We're not talking nations or anything like that. So the, now we have a change. Before, uh, leadership was kind of merit-based. And it still might be merit-based in the chiefdom. Often, uh, one way a leader is elected is they have a pool of eligible candidates, and they pick the best person from that, uh, according to a council or a group uh, that picks, whoever picks the leader, uh, picks it often from a viable pool of candidates. Usually, in chiefdoms and states, that pool is restricted to a certain social class. Usually, it's the leading class, uh, the quote-unquote superior class, whatever. What, why would you pick someone from the lower class to lead the society? That doesn't make any sense in the internal logic of the communities that do this. Um, it's unusual that you know, we champion rags-to-riches stories in America, but we are kind of unusual. Uh, it's lineage-based, so you're going to pick the leaders from among the from among uh, the leading families, right? Uh, although Rome uh, and, the, and we'll meet the Aztecs later were both state-level societies, right? The the ruler was picked from that leading family. Who's going to be the king or the uh, the ruler in this scenario is going to be coming from this family? Often, it's the eldest boy. But that's not always the case. Sometimes the eldest boy is a real screwed up individual, and they will uh, make certain uh, internal changes to make sure that he, usually he, not always, 
uh, is the leader, right? Um, these are uh, ranked societies, as I've mentioned before, where you have some people who will be considered to be above others. And this is, you're born into this. This is not necessarily merit. Even in societies that have these formal designations, sometimes there are ways for people born of a lower status to move up, sometimes through marriage, sometimes through merit. Uh, often, you know, uh, men can move up as becoming amazing warriors or something like that or perhaps extremely wealthy merchants, or some other sort of individual success, but those stories are pretty rare. Social organization is divided by lineage. Um, so within, if this is your chiefdom, you know, this bubble represents all the people in the chiefdom, within that you have internal divisions, and those might be similar kind of in nature to tribes socially, right? Or perhaps they were tribes and they banded together to create a chiefdom. And you have within those tribes, you have a leader or a couple of representatives from each tribe or from each internal organization. Can't call them tribes. Um, moieties or other internal organizations. So they have all the people underneath them, but they have internal divisions. And sometimes within a chiefdom, you require to avoid incest or intermarrying, uh, you require to be married from someone from another lineage. In other organizations or in other chiefdoms, you're required to marry within your lineage. And this could be thousands of people, so it's not like you're marrying your cousin necessarily or your, uh, you know, someone in your direct family. So it's probably no, it's no big deal. Um, but it depends. However, there are different, as many different ways to organize a chiefdom as there are chiefdoms. Within that social lineage division, there is a lot more merit-based advancement, but you're still not going to come up above this glass ceiling because it's made out of bulletproof glass. You're not getting above it. Um, or I guess it wouldn't be bulletproof glass. I guess it would be like noggin-proof glass. So you can bump your head into that glass ceiling, but you're not going to break it. Um, economy. Uh, here we're getting, a, as we have a more centralized governmental type organization, you're starting to see central redistribution. So that means the population within this chiefdom are all probably donating or uh, paying a certain amount of their um, annual agricultural uh, products and or their time to the central organization. Um, this means that there are citywide uh, granaries, uh, perhaps a city subsidized market. Um, but in times of need, that extra food that has been donated or given or taken um, by the central organization or the central body is then, in theory, dispersed to those who need it during drought, during famine. Um, but of course, they're also using that uh, food or that stuff that they have amassed uh, from taxes or a tax-like system to build central um, precincts, build palaces, um, and do things for themselves. And of course, we have craft specialization. That means, um, just like in tribes where we have people who are sedentary and you have potters or wood choppers or uh, builders, you have the same thing here, but to an even greater degree because you have a larger town uh, you have, uh, you can have even more deep specialization 
where, oh, I just make pots for cooking. You need serving pots. Oh, uh, you need serving pots. You need to go next door. Thanks. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, as you might have guessed, settlement is permanent and sedentary, um, as we already had that with the tribes. Um, and here we get hierarchical um, organization of the villages. So for example, you might have the central town here, and then around it you have satellite vi villages that are not as populous, and you know there's often roads connecting them. There would be, uh, in the main town, you're going to have things like the equivalent of city hall or whatever you know, um, municipal building you have for municipal administration. You're going to have probably palaces. You're going to have temples. You're going to have all the major uh, economic, the main market, the everyday market is probably going to be in that town, whereas the villages around might have like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or whatever. Um, and then in the central town, they might have a market that's open every day. That's where um, disputes are settled, judiciary, all of these things would be in the central town. And we can see this archaeologically because this town is not only larger, but it has a different sort and class of buildings than you see in the surrounding countryside. Fortified, um, so even, so in Band and Tribe, or excuse me, in band we see some conflict, but again it's usually interpersonal. Hey, I have a problem with, sorry, I just keep picking on Dirk because he's in the front. Um, I've got a problem uh, personally with you. You did something to my family or I did something to yours and you want a venge you know, vengeance, vendetta, whatever. Um, once we get to band, excuse me, tribe, we have a little bit larger populations. You might go as a raiding party, like a small band of, of, of warriors or whatever going over to the next village to raid them or to take some cattle or whatever, who knows what you're doing. <coughs> a little less personal, but more individualistic still than by the time you get to chiefdoms, you're starting to get into not quite armies, but at least like a militia, right? Um, a band of people who are going to be uh, given with the defense of the city or the town. Um, there might be fortifications in some areas. There might be fortifications around the central city. In other times, they might make fortifications around the entire thingamajig, but that's a lot of work. So usually people fortify the towns because that's a lot easier to fortify, although they might have outposts around. And the idea, um, some would argue, that because as, as more wealth is concentrated, and I, by wealth I don't just mean like bars of gold, I mean like maybe food in the time of drought, or uh, ritual power, or Social power. Any time of power gets more concentrated, it becomes a more uh, alluring target to the next town or village or chiefdom over, where they say, "Hey, uh, all our people are starving. Let's go next door and sack their granary." Um, right. So, as the more concentration you have, the more differential in wealth <laughs> you might see, and that might lead to conflict. That's one. That's one point of view. <laughs> I apologize for my throat, and I'm out of tea, so I apologize. You're going to have to listen to me cough and sniff. I'm sorry. Uh, examples would be uh, Polynesian chiefdoms. Like, Polynesian chiefdom is like a really common phrase in anthropology because a lot of these islands 
uh, spread out throughout Southeast Asia and across the Pacific um, that were settled by Polynesians on rafts um, were only large enough to hold a chiefdom. They wouldn't have been large enough to hold a state, which we're going to meet next. Um, and the chiefs of Polynesia were largely left to their own devices until the age of colonization. So uh, anthropologists going there in the late 1800s and early 1900s got a look at a whole bunch of different chiefdoms and how they uh, organized themselves socially. And so like Bronislav Malinowski and other pioneer, Margaret Mead perhaps you've heard of, um, some of the pioneering anthropologists of the early 1900s were looking at Polynesian chiefdoms because they were quote unquote these untouched tribes, although I've talked to you about the problem of these untouched tribes sorts of idea. The Pacific Northwest, um, so um, Oregon, Washington State, and British Columbia is an extremely rich environment. So rich that people, this is one of the, this is a fun uh, counterexample because usually uh, here we're talking about agricultural societies that have farms supporting nine out of ten people are farmers and they support the chiefdom city. In the Pacific Northwest, we have extremely complex societies who live in dense urban, eh, I wouldn't call them urban, but dense population centers, um, but they're not farmers. They live in such a lush environment that they are able to support cities as hunter-gatherers. And they're one of, someone, I think there was one more somewhere in the world at some point, but the Pacific Northwest is such an unusual case just because they live in such a nice environment. Um, if you've ever been out there, it's gorgeous. Like, oh, if I could just like, if everybody in the entire world died and it was just me, my dog, okay, and I guess my wife uh, left, I would argue that we should move to the Pacific Northwest just because it's oh, so nice. <sighs> anyway, so when you all go, that's where, I'm, that's where you'll find me. All right. Um, I love in those scenarios how it's always you that survives, right? <laughs> OK, um, archaeological correlates. So when we are, as archaeologists, looking back at a chiefdom, when we're not able to see the chief, when we're not able to ask them how they collect taxes and things like that, what do we look for? We look for large-scale monuments and uh, architectural differences uh, that make the central cities. They don't have to be central. Sometimes they're on a coast or on a river or something else. Um, but the primary cities different than others, usually it's through architectural means. Like even if a, for some, I keep going back to an atomic war wiping out the entire Earth population in the next 10 years, if the aliens come in 100 years, they're still going to be able to pinpoint which cities were the most important due to size and architecture. They're going to know that Washington was an unusual city because it has a lot of really wide open, uh, but monumental looking architecture that looks like ancient Greek architecture. Why is that here? They're going to know that Washington was a special city. But then they'll also look at things like uh, New York or Philadelphia, Boston, Chicago, uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul as large demographic cities and probably correctly assume that these were centers of um, economic or civic power as well. Permanent ritual structures. These are temples. That's just a really nice way to say temple. Um, or other large um, religion-focused uh, or civic-focused. I guess you could 
there are all kinds of rituals in Washington, and they're secular rituals, but they're still rituals. Okay. The a state is the uh, largest pre-industrial social organization. Um, it's similar to a chiefdom, however, it's larger. And the ruler, and this is where the big difference comes, size, and the ruler creates and enforces laws. In a chiefdom, perhaps a chief would serve as kind of an arbiter when two people come with a, comp with a judicial problem, right? But he's or she is more enforcing social norms. Here in a state, once you get in codified laws, things that are written down and said, this is what happens when you kill somebody, you get put to death, or you get your eyes poked out, or you, we kill your kids, or we, who knows what you do, right? When those laws are written down, when they go from being just spoken um, rules, and rules and norms to actual codified laws, then we're usually dealing with a state, or we're dealing with a state that's imposing those laws on bands, tribes, or chiefdoms, right? So when uh, colonial powers come into somewhere that usually just has like chiefdom level organization, and they impose laws, those chiefdoms don't automatically become states. They're just being colonized, which is a completely different thing. Um, we see stratification continue, right? So it's like a chiefdom, but on steroids and with laws. Uh, over 20,000 people usually belong in a state. That doesn't mean the city or town that centers the state doesn't has to be 20,000. It means like the whole population. So these still aren't like necessarily huge populations. Leadership is formal, permanent, and a separate class. This is where we're starting to see things like um, holy rulership or divine rulership. So the king or the whoever is appointed by, well, rules with uh, God or the God's consent or by their, by their will, right? So you can't oppose a king a holy king, because the holy king speaks for God or the gods. Um, so they have absolute power, absolute rule. And that's not true in all states, but many of them have a um, religious component to their rulership. Uh, rulers form a separate class. This is where we start seeing nobility, right? People who are nobles, um, and that's that ruling class. That's usually also from the socially elite class. Class hierarchy becomes rigid. It's very hard to get ahead based on merit. Um, no matter how great of a warrior or accountant or whatever you are, you are never going to get out of your class. Think of caste system, right? That's how straight. A caste system like they used to have in India and other places in the world, but caste is usually the term that most of us know. A caste system is rigid. You must marry within your caste. You cannot um, marry outside of your caste or you get knocked down a peg to whatever caste you're marrying into. Uh, you, I love it. The caste system in India was reinforced by the idea, like I'm sure we've all heard of the idea of karma, uh, where the only way to get into the next class is, uh, or the next caste, is to do your duty and fill, fulfill your role in your current caste so that when you die, 
you come back in the next life one cast up. And you keep doing that, and eventually you get to the top ca cast, and you can become enlightened, or you can be at that top cat. Like that's the so it's like uh, I know like Marxism is a big like woo scare talk tactic, um, but the phrase the opiate of the masses or the idea that religion is just a way that a state uses to keep its people in line. That's a great example of it, right? So basically, religion is being used to keep people doing what they're doing, right? So in a state, it's very common that a religious doctrine would be used to underline and reinforce this class hierarchy. In India, for example, they would say, you fulfill your duties now, and you move up a caste next time. You don't, you move down a caste, and you don't want to move down, right? Um, in the same thing happened in Europe. When we look at the feudal states of the Middle Ages, the church doctrine was, yeah, this life is suffering. Your life sucks now. But you push through that, you know, this terrible, crappy life now, and you'll be rewarded by um, you know, life everlasting or whatever you want to call heaven or whatever. So religion is, and it's not just Marx that says this, but Marx is usually the one that's brought up when people talk about how religion is used in that way. Um, so religion is often used to reinforce class hierarchy. I'm not saying that as a bad or a good thing. I'm an anthropologist. I don't really care. Um, <laughs> it's just I'm reporting on it. Like It's important to understand that mechanism, whether or not you agree with it. You don't have to agree with it. You don't have to think it's a good thing or a bad thing, but you have to understand how it works. Right? That's basically what we do. I personally obviously have opinions about it, but when I'm looking at how it works, I think it's fascinating um, how any idea is used to get a person to act not in their best interest. It's fascinating. Um, like I said, rigid, you're not able to get out of that class. Um, okay. Boop. Economy is more centralized, meaning um, before we saw redistribution, but here in a state level society, we have written down laws, right? We have enforcement of those laws. So in a state, if you have tax collectors, you probably have a state. In a chiefdom, I should say that taxes are usually collected by the, the religious organization. So it's seen as tithing, or it's seen as like the, the priests, or whoever the religious permanent people are. Um, they often take care of uh, safeguarding and watching those things, because they're seen to be answering to a higher power, sort of, right? So usually, the, when, the, uh, when we move to a state, though, we have like a state office of taxes. And the state treasury and things like that. So it becomes more centralized and uh, take usually, usually taken away from the religious orders, um, regulated and taxed. So in a state, we might see things like coins. If we see coins being used by band, tribe, or chiefdom, often that is because they are living next to a state and they're using the state's money, basically. Um, but only in a state are you going to see people making coins or other sorts of um, recognized fiat currency. Settlement in a state, uh, you see a basically a further derivation of, of this. You see instead of two levels where you have like villages in the town, here you have like hamlets, which are even smaller. 
So you see at three or four levels of hierarchy. And then they'd be out here again, right? So there'd be a lot more. It's like Catan. Eh. Nerd alert. OK. Um, central planning in a, uh, it's really interesting. So if you've ever been to Europe and you drive around a town, you realize that the towns were not built for a car. That's why those small cars are so popular in Europe. It's to get around little, tiny little alleys and streets that were built for like walking and horse carts and things like that. Whereas here in America, obviously things were planned for the automobile and we have so much space. All of that has to do with central planning, right? Uh, the state mandates how um, certain things will be built. And eh, not everything. Especially in the ancient world, they didn't have like code enforcement or anything like that. Usually this had to do with public infrastructure. Um, so they would plan to bring in water to the city. Um, they would plan plumbing to move waste out of the city. They would um, sometimes specify the width of ox cart axles. Because when you're driving around in an ox cart and you dig a rut into the road, that's a side view. Um, here's your wheel. If everyone has different size wheels, there's going to be all kinds of jangly ruts all over the road. But if everyone has the same width of axle, um, then you're going to have the same width rut. And you can make like a, almost like a reverse uh, railroad. Um, and so they, they would specify things like that that would, in theory, uh, improve the public good. Um, but we can see that as archaeologists. That's the nice thing. Um, yeah, and a lot of the cities in Europe were built uh, kind of more organically under chiefdom-like conditions. Um, yeah. Examples of ancient states include the Aztec, Inca, Romans, Egyptians, and the Greeks, uh, Maya. Basically, everyone we're talking about, they're states. They have a much more complex uh, social organization. And remember, there's no value judgment on this. We're not saying that just because states have more people or more craft specialization, um, different way of living, or whatever, that it's necessarily better or worse. Um, certainly, I imagine many of us have an opinion that living in a complex society like this has many more benefits than not. But we can certainly debate. We kind of did debate that. Um, so we're not making a value judgment. That's why I say complex, large-scale um, society rather than a, a civilization. Because you, civilization, um, way back in the day, there were three grades. Uh, this is like total late 1800s colonial, colonial BS. Um, we have civilizations, and then we have um, barbarians, and then we have savages. Those are the three levels of society that you can belong to. This is basically, instead of band, tribe, chiefdom, and state in the 1960s and 70s, this is what had been like the way that anthropologists or pre-anthropologists would have organized societies. Obviously, being called a savage is not really something you do nowadays to anybody if you want to have all your teeth remain in your head. Um, a barbarian. Uh, is a little better, I guess, but we get, I don't know, in my head I get images of like Conan the Barbarian that was on the TV all the time when I was a kid or 
um, Hagar the Horrible or something, right? So it's a little more organized society, but obviously the best place to live is a civilization, and the idea was that savages and barbarians were on a treadmill or a uh, escalator up to become civilized. That's where they were all aiming to be. Why don't we help them along? That was the idea um, that under my, or under lied a lot of colonial expansion, bringing civilization to the barbarian nations or the savage nations. Obviously, we don't talk like that anymore because that's not how we value people differently now. Uh, so when we're looking at band, tribe, chiefdom, state, these are descriptive categories, not as value judgment. If you're saying it's better to live in a state, that's your opinion, which is fine to have. So uh, archaeologically, uh, Again, as you might have guessed, it's pretty easy to see a state because of the central planning. Uh, the three-tier settlement hierarchy, which is uh, urban centers, um, rural centers, and then rural settlements. Public buildings become larger, um, and palace palaces, you start to see palaces even in chiefdoms. Because remember, there's a big difference when somebody is able to say, hey, you guys, why don't you come over to my house and help me build my house? And we're going to make it way bigger than I could have ever made it myself. There's a big leap there socially when somebody has that much social clout. Similarly, in states and uh, chiefdoms, when we see babies buried with lots of riches, that's because that baby was born into a lineage that had a lot of money or social power, usually both. And so if you find a baby buried with a lot of riches, that baby probably didn't have any merit-based way to do it unless it was a really amazing baby. Um, so it's very likely that you're dealing with a chieftain or a state. <coughs> so I've been talking about this a, a few times already. One way that we identify chieftains and states is through settlement studies. Settlement studies look at a large area on a map they're kind of like macro studies. Uh, they look at many different sites all at once. And if you're able to put hierarchies, uh, just like you're able to put society into hierarchies, upper, lower, class, whatever, um, you can often put these um, settlements into hierarchies. This one is based on the number of pyramids or mounds that you find at a site outside of St. Louis. Cahokia was a really large uh, mound site and would have been probably the capital or the central area, uh, central town of this whole region. And then these secondary centers were around the river. Um, now, does anyone see a subjective part of building these hierarchies? So a, uh, something that is up to personal interpretation rather than just straight up facts. We're using Pyramids, population, things like that. Yeah? Correct. Yes. Well, and even choosing a pyramid means that we think pyramids are a salient feature that correlates to social power, which it probably does, but we don't know that. Uh, yeah, and same thing with population. And population, we haven't even talked about population reconstruction in archaeology, but anytime someone says, this ancient city had 100,000 people in it, unless they have written accounts from that time that said that the population was 100,000 people, it's 
it's better than a guess, but not much. <laughs> it's, they're not, it's really hard to estimate population. So yeah, the, the features that we pick, that we, number one, that archeologists pick, uh, because we can see them archeologically, and number two, we think they're important to the target society, those are two potential pitfalls, because I might look at this and say, oh, I don't think pyramids are as important as household numbers. Maybe household numbers are more important, because we certainly, if we looked at, say, graveyards, uh, or people buried in a town, uh, some towns might, like Washington, would look way more important than New York. And we can debate about whether Washington or New York is more important, right? Um, probably depends on what you're looking at. So you have to remember when you see hierarchies, these are hierarchies based on data collected by archaeologists and assigned a value. And so it may or may not reflect reality to the people who lived here. The biggest city might not be the most important. If you argued that population alone was the most important, New York would be the most important city in the country. And we can certainly debate whether it's um, Washington, New York, or Mar-a-Lago. Uh, 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 OK. I don't know. Oh, man. OK. Um, so yeah, this is one way that we can look at how you would organize. You know, you can group these. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> people have lots of fun sitting and drawing ideas about settlement hierarchy and, and how Cahokia, for example, and this is the same place outside of St. Louis, um, <clears throat> how people can organize these. And all of these arrows represent different social <clears throat> social interactions, uh, redistribution, um, tribute, tension, competition. So these are all social things that we don't necessarily see very well in the archaeological record. So they are supposing, and often it's based on some evidence, but it's um, especially in unwritten societies like this, uh, you don't have as much, like, how do you know these two are at odds with one another? And you, it, it, it can be very difficult. So when you see these things, they are not done, they're done very carefully. And the person almost always has put a lot of time, effort, and thought into them. And they should be considered carefully. However, um, they shouldn't be accepted as <laughs> gospel truth, I guess, or uh, unimpeachable truth. <laughs> gospel truth. Uh, sorry, I'm just in my own head. Uh, gospel truth, uh, unimpeachable truth because uh, an archaeologist wrote it out there. There's certainly room and uh, ideas for interpretation. So. Just be aware of that as you read. Just like when I interpret hubris or other crazy stuff going on uh, in the archaeological record, you can certainly call my interpretations into question because they're interpretations. Um, boo, 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 boo. Can I get to settlement studies? No. OK. Um, Social rank uh, and social hierarchy we often see through uh, residence is a big one. So again, remember that uh, sea change where you go from building your own house versus building a house uh, that is way bigger than one person or family could ever build. Then you're definitely looking at a chiefdom or a state where you have a palace and you have hereditary rulers who are able to command their uh, citizens or their subjects, really, 
to build them a really nice house. And many times, <clears throat> these residences are kind of off limits, just like the White House uh, or the house, houses of the rich and famous in Hollywood or others have walls around them to restrict access. We have the idea of restricted access in archaeology. And if you look here, you see the central courtyard of this Maya uh, palace. Is You can't just walk up to it. You have to go through and up these stairs and through a building to get into the center. There isn't a place where you can just walk in off the plaza right into the palace. That's restricted access. There probably would have been guards or at least social taboos about going in there without permission. And that's a signal that we can see as archaeologists that this was a special protected space. Um, amassed wealth can tell us a lot. Uh, so this represents just to pick on this example, this represents a lot of people's time and effort. Um, and that suggests that the people that lived there would have been able to direct more than their own time and effort. Um, they would have often been filled with uh, what are called prestige goods. We certainly have prestige goods. Um, but we generally manifest them in, I don't know, cars, jewelry, handbags, uh, clothing labels, and other things. Some are more prestigious than others. Uh, ancient societies also had prestige goods. Sometimes they had rules that only uh, people of a certain rank could wear, use, own, whatever uh, these prestige goods. Um, <clears throat> it would have been a sign of wealth. Um, and sometimes we also have depictions of the wealthy. Uh, often, we're more likely to have depictions of the wealthy, um, Tutankhamun, uh, as one example. Um, burials, again, a great microcosm or um, piece of evidence for us because it shows what a society thought of somebody who was dead and or what is the proper way to treat a dead uh, person. So in chiefdoms and states, Children can be associated with rich grave goods. Uh, Tutankhamun was a teenager, yet he has one. Now, to be fair, Tutankhamun's burial probably wasn't really like the most wealthy burial ever in Egyptian history. But because it wasn't looted, it was still all there. And so it looked like it was super rich. It was probably pretty common for a ruler of his time and place. That notwithstanding, still a pretty rich burial for a kid. A teenager, uh, so that tells you that even though, even if you didn't know anything about else about the Egyptians, that we're dealing with a state level or at least a chieftain level society because that child had accumulated so much uh, information um, wealth. Status is uh, hereditary, um, not uh, through merit. <laughs> right. So here's a blow up drawing of Tutankhamun. It's actually not that big. It's a couple of rooms. Many of you probably live in apartments uh, larger than Tutankhamun's tomb, um, although none of you live in an apartment worth as much as Tutankhamun's tomb. Well, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe one of you is a secret millionaire. I don't know. Um, the scale of burials also increases uh, exponentially with, like if, if we came up with some sort of, like the Gini index or some sort of measure of 
of social stratification, and it went from let's say one to five, and then we had a different co uh, different coefficient of uh, burial wealth, and that goes from one to five. And of course, we're making these up. Um, you'd have to do a lot of experimentation to come up with the right way to do this. But the basic idea is that the greater the social stratification, the burial, wealth burial, or the amount of, really the amount of social disparity in wealth, also it goes up even faster. So it's logarithmatic or arithmetic, or excuse me, it's um, exponential rather than um, simply one for one, which, you know, we've all heard the phrase recently, more often, um, you know, the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer. Well, as we have more social stratification, uh, one way we see that is in the extravagant uh, burial practices. Although, interestingly, in the United States, even an extravagant burial isn't really that extravagant by ancient standards. And so um, we tend, if we're changing this to look at our own society, we wouldn't do burial wealth. We'd probably do real estate wealth. And uh, as people become more socially unequal, we probably see a lot more differentiation in the way that we uh, live and have houses and things like that, um, I, would, I would think. Mm. Oh, there's craft specialization for some reason. So craft specialization uh, becomes more centralized. As you go to more complex and um, larger scale societies, craft specialization becomes more centralized. What I mean by that is not only do uh, the real top artisans come usually to live in the capital, or unless they have a specific reason to live somewhere else, um, sometimes they are specifically under the control of the ruler. So in a tribe where we first see central, um, craft specialization, Usually it's like a potter, or uh, a woodworker, or a candlestick maker, or whatever, working in their cottage, making these things and selling them on the free market, whatever. Once we get to a state, often if you are really amazing at something, especially if you're amazing at making uh, sumptuary goods or prestige goods, you're going to basically belong, all your work is going to belong to the elites. So, if you are a Gucci, a uh, handmade Gucci bag maker, uh, you're going to belong to the elites. If you make uh, jewelry, a lot of times. Uh, and, and they don't just want it for themselves, they want it to trade to others. But they'll often own, and by, by own I mean that they often pay the craft specialist, give them a place to live and work, and then get all their, get all of their stuff. So it's, it's like getting a full-time permanent job, basically, with the state. And by the, the state, I mean the, the body of the, of the ruler. Um, between polities, so how cities would interact, change is a bit as we get more uh, large and complex. Um, just as society gets more complex, and if you think about it, it makes sense. The more people you cram together, the more complex their social organization and interactions are going to be, just because of, you know, Think of humans as random little molecules that are a little vibrating next to each other. The more you compress them and put them together, the more reactions you're going to get because they're interacting. Um, similar with people. 
And similarly with cities and uh, states that are adjacent to one another, they're going to have more complex and intense uh, relationships as they get larger and grow. Um, just as there are more levels of interaction in a chiefdom in a state, there are more levels of interaction in interpolity and intersite relationships. So if you remember back to peer polities, I discussed them mm, a couple weeks ago, and things like competitive emulation or um, ethnic uh, links or language links or um, trade of ideas or symbolic entertainment like the Olympics, those sorts of things come back into play. And actually, I have a small game that we're going to not have time for right now. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.